Hello, welcome to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. As you all know, Brie is still overseas in Egypt, but we have a great author interview today with Gian Yankovic, who has written the brilliant book, Just Friends. Welcome to another episode of Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. Today, you just have me, Bridie, and we are joined by a very special debut author, Gian Yankovic. Welcome, Gian. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on. Gian is the author of a book called Just Friends, which is a book with a lot of essays on friendship. Now, when I first heard this topic, I thought, I like Gian and I think she's really smart, but I think I know everything there is to know about friends. I'm amazing at having friends. <laughs> but then I read it and I loved it. It's analytical, it's original, it's gossipy, it's everything. And so I couldn't wait to get you on to discuss all the different aspects of it. But first off, as we always do with an author interview, I want you to tell me three books to get out of a reading rut. Amazing. I can do this. I feel like I'm in a reading rut every year from approximately March to December and then it's summer and then I get back into it. Um, <laughs> so that is, that is the way it goes, isn't it? I just read so much over summer and then the year starts off and I'm like, I'm amazing. I'm an intellectual. I read so many books and then it gets to winter and I'm like, uh It turns out I can't read again. <laughs> yeah, I can't read again. Um, so I've thought a lot about this and I think that there are like three key elements to what makes a book good for getting out of a rut. One of them, which is my first pick, is a book that's really pacey. So my pick for this kind of idea is called The Guest by Emma Klein. It's a relatively new-ish book. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it, but I love that you're bringing it up because I felt like it was everywhere last year. And then it was one of those books perpetually on my list that I didn't get to, but there was a huge amount of buzz, especially in New York. Yes. It was everywhere last year. And I felt like everyone who I follow on Instagram or know living in New York was reading it over New York summer. It's set in the Hamptons. So I actually saved it to read for this summer because I was like, feels like a summer book. I'm not going to be sucked into the Northern Hemisphere weather cycles. I'm going to read it in Australian summer. It's essentially a book about a young woman who is a sex worker and finds herself wrapped up in this very like high society world in the Hamptons. And it's set over one week. So basically for one week, you know where this woman sleeps every night, you know what she eats every day, you know every single person she talks to, like you are so sucked into the pace of her life. It's like no other book that I have read before because you're literally following her like I got in the car, I went here, I had a cheeseburger, then I got on my bike, then I rode here. And it sounds like that could be boring, but I think because the book itself is so incredibly stressful and the character is like the most chaotic character that I've ever read in a book, it's really fun and I just absolutely burned through it. I love a book with lots of food as well. The food, I mean, I don't want to tell you that like reading it is going to satisfy that because she eats some pretty depressing meals. She's kind of like, I mean, she's essentially homeless for this week. So she's kind of like scrounging together where to stay and what to eat, like without giving too much away. So it's kind of like dire times for her. (laughs) I love reading about a character's food and what they're eating because I feel like it could be such a good insight into the character and where they're at and where their headspace is and whether they're like in a space of denial or shame, yeah. or like desire. This is totally even. that, yeah, because it's like very survival instinct, like food as fuel, where is next meal coming from, like that kind of stress that you don't see Is there very a mystery much. in it? There's not a mystery. It's more just like, 
wow, this young woman has got herself in a real pickle and I don't understand <laughs> how she's going to get out of it. And does she? You'll have to read and see. Well, you've got me hooked. Okay, great. So that's my Pacey example. My next example is a book from a few years ago. I think it was released in 2020. It's called Writers and Lovers by Lily King. It is what I would call like a beach read, which I've been thinking a lot about when I was thinking about this kind of reading rut situation. I feel like I do gravitate towards those books that are classified as like beach reads. And I was like, what even is a beach read? I think it's just like a good, easy to read book. So this book Which is, is hard to pull off. It's hard to pull because off. Because beach read can sound like chick lit, like there is like an air of dismissiveness yes. to it. But it's very hard to pull off a book that's easy to read and is still engaging. That's totally it. And this is like such a good example of that. So it's about a woman who's 31 and I love any book that has a character who's like in their 30s. And it's like, it's a kind of, it's, I don't know if it's like a romance book, but I guess it's about her like falling in love and finding love and being torn between different people and getting over an ex. And, you know, that's not the main storyline. She's also working on a novel. She's also just lost her mother. So there's a lot of elements at play, but it is really smart. It's really funny. And it also, which I think is what makes it so good, writes flirting really, really well. Because she has all these different little like relationships, some that she's looking back on, some that are in the present tense. And I hadn't read a book where it sums up flirting and like banter with someone that you're like getting to know or falling for so well. Like she writes in with all the characters, these little inside jokes that they have on a first date and how they carry through the relationship and like funny things that two people call back on and then like, you know, words they say and just how those little conversations and memories shape the future of their relationship, which is what happens when you're, you know, flirting with someone, falling for someone in those like early little stages of building a relationship. Also such a parallel there, like that's obviously romantic relationship, such a parallel with friendship there as well, where Mm -hmm. you start off with like little in-jokes from when you first meet that you're still saying to each other like eight years later. Totally. There aren't enough in-jokes in books. And I think that that's probably because they're quite hard to write and quite hard to make someone else interested in. But Lily King has done an amazing job at that, that it just made the characters and relationships feel really real in a way that I was like, yeah, that reminds me of, you know, sub, like a joke that I've had with someone or have with someone. Caroline O'Donoghue did it really well in the Rachel incident. And mm. it was something I really noticed because you're right, you hardly ever see in jokes, well, even attempted really, but let alone written well. And she did it really, have you read the Rachel incident? No, I haven't yet. It's about two people becoming friends, like straight out of uni, you know, very early 20s, li- living in a crap flat share and lots of other things happen. But yeah, one of the strengths, like one of the biggest strengths of that book was writing the blossoming of a friendship with all the in-jokes that kept going, like threaded all the way through it as well. It's really nice. And it's just, I think it's like a brand new, brings a new element to the story that I hadn't seen before. So that's my like, you know, whatever we think a beach read is, beach read recommendation, which is always good to get out of a rut. I feel like that's why people go on holidays and are like, I read five books, even though I don't normally read that much. My third recommendation is called Department of Speculation by Jenny Phil. And it is a book that I have read the last few days. I've actually had it sitting on my shelf for years. My friend Erin gave it to me for my birthday in like 2021. And I always think about it because when she gave it to me for my birthday, she wrote me this card. She lives overseas, so she posted it to me. And she was like, I'm giving you this book because it's easy to read and short. You should never give like, she made a joke about like giving someone a book for their birthday and being like, happy birthday, here's war and peace. (laughs) And it just like really stuck with me because I'm like, 
I love buying people books and I love getting books as gifts, but you should never gift someone a long book. Like if you want to be a good person and a good friend, gift someone a book that they can read in a weekend so then they can feel satisfied that they've read the gift that you gave them, but they haven't lost six months of their life in like an obligation read. Even though you put it off for what, two or three years. I know, I put it off for years. <laughs> you still now, put it off for years. I still put it off Don't for years. Don't give them the bee sting. I ordered the beasting I'm gonna read it and it came in the post and the size was a bit it's intimidating because I want to have the proper mind space to sit it's not something I'm just going to pick up on a Monday evening and flick through for half an hour yeah and then totally put down I have have to have half a day set aside to start it I know I literally was in a bookshop on the weekend and I saw the beasting on the table and I was like approaching and approaching and then picked it up and I was like oh not today yeah <laughs> just like put it back if I hadn't ordered it online I don't think that I would have bought it yeah by now in a shop because, yeah, you have to have the time, right, headspace. Very hefty. But Department of Speculation, one of my favourite books okay, yay, of I'm all glad. time. So you describe you describe it. Okay, so it's hard to describe, I think, like the plot. It's about a woman. She is married. She is a writer or wants to be or used to be. She's also a teacher. She has a daughter. And what is really interesting in this book is how it's written. Every chapter is really short, but then every chapter is, it's almost like reading poems. It's written, you know, every paragraph is only a few lines. It's really bite-sized. It's not a normal narrative flow to a book. And I was thinking about people's attention spans. And I think that that's why we have trouble with reading books. And I'm like, if you want to read a book of like really poetic Instagram captions that somehow <laughs> like link together and tell a story, like this is the book for you. It's just. It's absolutely perfect on a sentence level. There is so much of that book because I read it on a Kindle and I think I ended up highlighting two thirds mm. of the book, you know, like to save to go back to. If I had read the physical copy, I think I would have dogged every yeah. single page because of how not a comma wasted. No, no, I was reading it on the train to work this week and I was literally like floored by one single sentence. And I was like, when is the last time that happened with a book? Like, yeah. And it was one sentence that was like a callback to one sentence at the start of the book between like two different characters. Like her daughter said the sentence once and then she repeats the sentence later in the book after an interaction with her husband. And I was like, what the hell? Like, you know, that power of a writer to be able to do that and a story be able to do that when it's a story that's not that plot driven. It's just so beautifully written and so emotive. It's really stunning. And really influential. I think once you read this book, you can see the influence of it on a lot of books published since then. One of the main ones that comes to mind is Sorrow and Bliss mm, by Meg Mason. Yeah. Um, reading that was very, I could, when I first read it and I love that book, I was like, wow, this is, a bit like Department of Speculation, like this paragraph telling the story in paragraphs. And then I read interviews with her where she said it was her favourite book. It changed the way she thought about writing books. That's so interesting yeah. to say. That. I hadn't thought about that, but I also love Sorrow and Bliss. So and I'm it, like, this is why there's like that link. And Sorrow and Bliss, she was her third book and it's so different to her first two. Mm. And so that was one where I saw the influence and then was proved correct by listening to the interviews. But I think that I see it in a lot of books. I can yeah. see you've read Department of Speculation and like it's done something for you or like revealed what you can do with a book. Yeah, it's amazing and it's short. It can fit in your bag. <laughs> I know, great book for the train. Yes, very good book for the train.
So on to your book, Just Friends, which another book that I wrote a blurb for that didn't make it to the front cover. Listen, <laughs> I had no say. I will say that I, your review, I mean, I love all of my endorsers equally, obviously. But what I loved most about your review, and I don't even know if it's part of what was on the cover, maybe it's on the inside cover, is that you refer to the book as full of gossip, which I love. I was like, thank you, Bridie. I'd never considered this about my own book. And this is a great review. Didn't you? No, I don't think so. I think because I was the person doing the interviews and then putting the interviews in the book, I wasn't like, great gossip. But I think when you're one step removed from being person telling the story or person listening and then retelling the story as the author, then you get to be like, yeah, good gossip. Yeah, it was. And like, so there are pseudonyms in it and it's not gossip in, um, I think in a flippant, shallow way. I mean, like gossip in the sense of getting to really hear people talk about some of the most private parts of their lives that you usually wouldn't be privy to because you talk to people about friendship breakups, friendship betrayals, working together as friends, being friends over many, many, many years, like friendships at work and how they form and how they're distinct from other friendships in your life. And it really, I think all those interviews really brought the book alive for sure. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that was really important to me, I think, to obviously include a diverse range of stories. But also I think that's such a good way to be able to show that like everyone has an interesting friendship story. You know, you don't have to have something where you're like, we started a multi-million dollar business. Although you do have that in the book. No, I do have that in there, um, (laughs) which I do think is interesting. But I do think that those stories are a little bit more told. All the stories that are like, we've been friends since we were babies and then whatever. You know, I, I really wanted to tell so many different stories so that people would be able to think about their own friendships and be like, oh, if I told someone about this friendship that I had at work or this friendship that ended, like it would be an interesting story that people would show interesting, just as a means for encouraging people to talk about their friendships more. feel like you've already half answered this, <laughs> but what did you find so compelling about friendship that you thought it deserved a whole book? So compelling and also so under-discussed because I think that you discuss a lot of things about different parts of friendship in here that I hadn't really read about before, certainly hadn't seen presented in popular culture either. And I was wondering like what first drew you to think that friendship was worthy of this kind of like serious investigation and thought? I think that's something we haven't thought about enough and something that I probably hadn't thought about enough is how friendship really touches all parts of our lives. You know, I think that it's one thing to be like, I love my friends, I cherish them, but like in isolation, like in the universe of friendship, I love these people. But what I really wanted to do with the book was think about work, for example, not just as socialising at work, but also like surviving a capitalist (laughs) workplace and systems, you know, how do friends help with that? And then thinking about, you know, our romantic relationships and not just looking at the friendships of single people, which I do think is a big focus when we're talking about, you know, the correlations between friendship and romantic love. It's like, you know, single women's friendships are so important, which obviously is very true. But I also think that There was a lot to say and a lot that I learned about how our friends can make our romantic relationships a lot better or a lot worse as well if our friends kind of aren't there. So I think it was more just thinking about life in general and thinking about like what are all the things that I think about in life, you know, work, social media, pop culture, romance, family, and then like where do friends sit in each of those places and what influence do friends have over all of those situations and the people that exist within them? And the answer was like a lot. So, and on the gossipy front, 
What was the worst thing you heard a friend do to someone else? I mean, I don't want to spoil the most gossipy part of the book, no, but there was a interview that I have in the book who told me a story about a new friend that she had made and they became really close really quickly. It was one of those kind of intoxicating, intoxicating, tumbling together friendships that, you know, really ignited her world for some part because her romantic relationship wasn't great. And then her friend was over for dinner one night. Everyone's having a few wines. She went to bed. The friend stayed. The woman I interviewed got out of bed. The friend was still there on the couch with her boyfriend. The person I interviewed went to the bathroom, came out. The friend was gone. The boyfriend broke up with her. A few days later, the friend and the now ex-boyfriend are together. They're on Instagram. They're planning weekends away. They're staggering. It's it's staggering. And I think what was most interesting about that interview wasn't necessarily the resentment towards the friend. It wasn't, how could she do this to another woman? Like it wasn't that kind of thing. It was more like, what can this tell me about the way that I make friends and the way that I get to know people and who I decide to bring into my inner circle? And, you know, why why did I have so much trust for this person that I didn't know so well? And what does it mean to have been betrayed by a friend? And how is this going to impact my friendships? in the future. It was kind of a, it was a much more introspective and bigger way of thinking about a really tough situation than just like, this person did something bad to me. I hate them and blame them for the whole situation. Like I was shocked by that particular anecdote in there, but I also felt that that is also what made it even more compelling was it was brought back to her and how she approached friendships after that, which was uh, like a little bit sad, but also probably smart in that she became more guarded for quite a while. Yeah, and I do think that she still is. That particular case study is one of my friends, so I was really saw that whole situation play out from beginning to end. And I was really sad when I heard that as well because she is such an amazing person and she has so much to offer, but I do think that it made her reassess kind of new friendships or what people are looking for when they kind of gravitate towards her. I think like she is single at the moment and she has kind of noticed a bit of a cycle of other people coming out of relationships and being like, she's single, party girl, let's go out, let's do this. And she's like, well, no, actually, like I also have a limited amount of resources and time and I want to focus it on friendships that are really meaningful and aren't just about us both being single at the same time and being wrapped up in this cycle of, you know, getting cocktails and going out and meeting people. Like I want people who are going to be there on the other side of that. So that was a big realisation. But I agree, it was it's disappointing, but I think disappointing in the way that like there's always going to be a fallout when someone really lets you down who trusted. I think that was one of the biggest aspects of it because it's not your boyfriend cheating on you with some random. Yeah. It's like two people you trust yeah. betraying you. Exactly. And I think that was the stunning thing about that interview was that she wasn't as sad about the boyfriend, you know, that things hadn't been great with them for a while and it wasn't the breakup that hurt. She kind of made peace with that. It was the fact that she'd brought someone new into her life and trusted and who she had divulged a lot of that information about that relationship to that she felt kind of took advantage of that for her own her own like literal gain of like now I have a boyfriend and you don't. Oof. So what was one of the best things you heard about a friend doing for another friend? It's <sighs> a good question. I mean, I heard so many. One of my favourite interviews for the book was one I did quite early on. I interviewed 
two women, two trans women. They were both music writers, but they'd actually never met. They've only ever spoke online. They connected on Twitter and I don't know if they do calls or FaceTimes or whatever. I didn't ask, but it was really interesting for them. One of the women who I interviewed first actually revealed that when she, you know, had her realization that she was trans, her friend Hannah was the first person that she reached out to. And I think that that was one of the most interesting things because you hear so much about what we give our friends in terms of like gifts and time and experiences and creating memories and doing things together and, you know, having celebrations together or starting traditions or all this stuff. But their relationship, because they've never physically met, was really just this exchange of comfort that requires so much effort and consistency and trust because they're not seeing each other and they're not in similar time zones and they don't, you know, they might run in similar online circles, but they don't have that much binding them together. So I think that that was like a really stunning example and a really interesting thing when we talk about social media and friendship, which a lot of the conversation around that is always like about how social media is making our friendships you know, a little bit more superficial or a bit weak or, you know, we're we're texting when we should be seeing someone or we're not, you know, actually interacting with someone when we reply to their Instagram story as much as we think that we are. Well, I thought that was another great essay in this book, which in my head is titled Phones. <laughs> Good, actually. <Yeah. laughs> but I thought it was a great essay. It's something that I hadn't really seen explored in this way before but, and the case was for how being online can strengthen a lot of friendships and how it means that we can talk to our friends all day, every day in a way that we previously couldn't. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's twofold in that phones do give us this false sense of security that we're in touch with people when it's actually like, you know, have you just been heart reacting or like, have you actually been asking someone how they are outside their, you know, photo of their cocktail or whatever. But I think that, yes, we all get older and busier. Like there's not really any denying that without our phones, we wouldn't be as close to friends. You know, I live far away from so many of my friends, even in Sydney, like one of my best friends lives in Manly. Like I don't see her (laughs) if I didn't have my phone to be in a group chat with her or be messaging her or call her or, you know, see photos of her beautiful coastal walks on Instagram, then we wouldn't be as close because there's just... There's just no way because that's not how like society is set up as it was in the olden days where you were friends with like, you know. Your neighbours. Yeah, the, the people I on your street. I my neighbours but they're 85 years old. Well, that still counts <laughs> and that is important. Yeah, it is important but you also like to be – I do find my phone an asset to a lot of my friendships mm. and knowing details about their lives that I wouldn't otherwise know. And I do feel like a very long – and also with my sisters who are also my friends – but like this long ongoing conversation with each other that threads through almost every single day, which otherwise would be like a phone call every two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that when you're in that constant communication with someone, there's a real ease to it. You know, sometimes something might happen and you might think, oh, you know, that this friend would think that's funny. But if you haven't texted them in a week, it kind of feels a bit like outlandish to text them and be like, oh my God, like I just dropped my sandwich. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> Whereas if you're like in touch with someone every day, like, you know, our mutual friend Gina, I think we're both in touch with her every day. If I text her and was like, I just dropped my sandwich, she'd be like, no, like, this is so sad. She wouldn't be like, how are you as well? Like she'd be like, oh, Gian's obviously not good. She just dropped her sandwich. Like I'm going to check in with her after work and see like what's happening. <laughs> exactly. Although like I do love voice memos for friendships 
as well, but I sent a voice memo. It's funny picking the audience. I sent yeah. a voice memo to our family group chat, and I think that it probably just like gave my dad some sort of stroke. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody engaged with it. Oh, no, you can't so just leave someone hanging on a They all left note. me on red, every single one of them, my sisters, my brother, my parents. So, But I learned, I didn't, it was a great story as well, by the way. But anyway, I learned not the way to communicate with them online. That is very funny. When I was living overseas and got really into voice memos, I was like, I'm going to start them with all my friends. Like, this is going to be amazing. And there were just some friends that they, like, never, ever took off. Or, like, the friend would reply and be like, it would just be the most, like, awkward 20 seconds of their life. You could tell, like, <laughs> hello, just just trying this out. Um, still not used, not used to the voice memos. And thank you for yours. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, I don't want to cause you pain. Like, let's just not do it. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to send each other little voice ma- voicemails. Uh, one thing I thought while reading this book, though, is that I think there are aspects of friendship very underexplored in modern culture, which you go through in this book. But I also think that there are parts of friendship which are almost like overrepresented in pop culture, which I think is like, groups of really good female friends in their 20s slash Mm -hmm. even early 30s. And I think that is something that's represented a lot. And it makes me think about, I actually had this discussion with my friend Caroline, and I think it was more her idea than mine, but it's stuck in my head that is there like a new generation being bred that it's almost like the female version of incels, which like the males are involuntary celibate and they (laughs) – They think that they should be getting laid and then they're not Mm. and they blame women. Is there a female version of that of a woman who gets to 20, 22, 25 and thinks from their teenage years, you know, I'm going to have this fabulous group of female friends and it just doesn't happen Mm. for them for whatever reason and they can end up feeling like ripped off or even angry and also obviously very sad about it. Yeah, I think it's so funny when you started that question and you're like, the part of friendship that's overrepresented in pop culture, I was like, girl groups. Like yeah. it's, it's it's such a thing. And I think one of the parts that's the most over, overrepresented is that these are groups that stick around and are together for years and years and years, which is just not true. And I think that like a lot of the time we miss the fact that like, oh, I had that group and it might have been like a really good six months or a really good two years or really, you know, like a really good short amount of time. But when we're in a group, sometimes the joy of us all being together and available at the same time is lost when it doesn't last forever. I think that that's the most like unrealistic thing about these shows is that you've got like 20 seasons of this TV show where they're all still friends the whole entire time. Like no one moves, no one goes, has a baby and is like busy for a few years or no one gets a partner that the other people don't really like so it's not around as much or no one travels. Oh my God, that's such a key friendship thing, isn't it? (laughs) When they get a partner no one likes. It happens. Key friendship killer. (laughs) It happens. But yeah, it's it's difficult and I think, I mean, I don't know if it's like at incel level but it's definitely a thing and I think that it's something that people feel really bad about and it's people, like it's something that people have asked me about a lot as well. And what do you say? So are they asking you about advice, like how do I make those friends? Or I think it's not necessarily advice. It's more just like are there other people that also don't have this? And I think that it makes it hard because we think about our big occasions that we spend with friends, which are often like birthdays or other celebrations. And I felt this, you know, you have a birthday and you're like, well, I'm going to invite like 
these two friends from here and this friend from here and my best friend from high school. And then I'm going to have kind of this like weird combo of like 30 people that I'm going to feel really anxious about being together. And obviously over the years, if you keep inviting those similar people, like they eventually get to know each other. And, you know, if you're lucky, become friends as well. But it's a really common experience to have this real like mishmash of people come together. And I think that that's where things get a bit frustrating is that even if you are someone who has 30 friends you can invite to your birthday like it's so shitty that it's still stressful that because they're not all in one group when that's like not realistic unless of course you're someone who made friends in high school and hasn't made any more new friends since then or you have well yeah haven't made new friends or you have but they're still your ones from high school is still your best yeah exactly. which is one of the most rarest yeah long-lasting friendships although I'm still besties with my best friend from when I was 11 yeah, I still got some best friends from high school as well. But I think in the group dynamic, it's, yeah, like it's it's just tricky and it's just not realistic. And I know some people that still have those groups and I think that that's really nice, but I don't think it's to say if you don't have that group, then like you don't have friends or you don't have friends that are worthy of like being made into a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> After all your research and all your talking to friends about all the different contexts of their friendships, and the different situations that have played out in them, what do you think is the most common mistake that's made in friendship? I think the most common mistake that's made in friendship is that we underestimate how people, how much people like us. And that was something that I was really interested in research-wise in the book. You know, the book is full of anecdotes and case studies, but I also spoke to researchers and read a lot of journal papers, which kind of fried my brain. Which you interpreted very well. <laughs> Thank you. You made them very accessible in the book. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Yeah, we really underestimate how much people like us and it really holds us back from meeting new people, from having meaningful conversations, from reaching out to people after we meet them once. And I think that like not everyone has that. And when I read that research, I was like, I can list the people that don't feel like this because they're the people that you meet them and you know straight away that they like you and they're not scared to talk to strangers and they, you know, people gravitate towards them because people gravitate towards people who they think like them back. Yeah. And if you're talking to someone and you don't think that they like you, you're not going to be like out of your way, embarrassingly kind and, I mean, you're not going to be mean to them, but you're not going to be like, I'm obsessed with you. Like, let's keep chatting. What are you doing tomorrow? Like, let's stay friends. Like, give me your well, number. It closes you off a bit. If yeah. You think if, and that's also almost like a self-preservation mechanism as well. If you're talking to someone yeah. and you think they don't like you that much, why would you be vulnerable? That's exactly what it is. It's self-preservation. So then I think when we're in group settings, you know, people talk about how hard it is to make friends. And I think that's for so many reasons, which I get into in the book. But if you are somewhere where you're meeting new people, the biggest thing that's holding us back is that assumption that people don't like us. And for that reason, we are a little bit more withdrawn. We're more likely to reach for our phone. We're more likely to be like, oh, I'm going to go get the bathroom or I'm going to linger near the food and like get a sandwich and go stand in the corner, which I I feel myself doing or going to a party and you stick to the one person that you know instead of mingling or talking to other people or introducing yourself to others. Love it. That's actually <laughs> a great mistake. I was thinking that you were going to say, I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but that is a really, really interesting mistake to think of. Like you are holding yourself back, basically. I think so. And I think that it's a mistake that's made in early friendship. But by making mistakes in early friendship, you're preventing the friendship from going further, you know? Totally. 
Now, last question, which is one that I'm always so interested in, is how did you actually write the book? What was the process? Did you have strict timetables? Did you have strategies for how many words each day or blocking out your calendar or was it here and there? How did you do it? Okay, I did not have any kind of strict routines or anything, which is why I don't understand how anyone could possibly write a book that has a full-time job. I know that lots of people do it. I was freelancing at the time that I was working on the book, so I was quite free to like write whenever I wanted or, you know, I had quite a flexible schedule, which I think in hindsight was like a blessing and a curse because also some days I was like, I'm just going to go to the chemist and then like (laughs) go for a walk around Sydney Park. I can only write in the mornings. So if I was like, I need to get things done, I would try get up early and just like go straight to my computer, like often in my pajamas. But in terms of process, I started off just with like one Google Doc that was just called brainstorming in all capitals and was just like a literal dumping ground of like any link to a story I thought was interesting, any link to a study I thought was interesting, any single thought that I had that like might be something, maybe question mark, question mark, question mark, would just go into that doc. And then eventually that doc got subheadings that became chapters. Then it became, you know, a new Google Doc of like notes on this particular chapter. But it was all very messy. I, I let Gian is so <laughs> chaotic. I know, it was I'm really chaotic. I'm shocked by how chaotic your process is. I think that you don't know where to start. And I think that like, you know, I've been a journalist for like 14 years and my drafts always kind of start out as just like blank page with like random notes and links. So I was like, I'm going to use that same approach, but for a book. And it was a bit of a mess, but I sent myself a lot of emails just like in the middle of the night or like on a walk, just like oh my God. Something, Even on more this, chaotic. something on this. And then I would kind of get back to my desk and have like five typo riddled emails from myself and be like, okay, let's do it. But sometimes those were like the best yeah. lines or the best ideas. What does this mean? Phone's what good. What does this mean? <laughs> if I'm to write another book, I hope that it is not using the same process. <laughs> I think it is very journalist of you though, not to be scared of the messy first draft which I think is why so many journalists are good at delivering the book. And I include myself in that, in that we weren't precious about dumping bad words on a page. Like we know it can be worked around and sculpted and re-edited again and again, where I think that some people who don't work to as tight a deadlines as we usually do are kind of like scared of not being completely correct the first time. I think so. And like, I am not a perfectionist at all. Like I was like, I will do the best with the time that I have. And then someone smarter than me will edit this and hopefully help me. And then I will get it. Like I love being edited. My worst nightmare is like handing someone something and them not having any notes and it just being published anywhere in the world. Just because I think that like editing is everything. And I probably say that as an editor. I'm like, please (laughs) let me edit you. So I think that that was good as well because I had a lot of trust in my publisher and the people around me. I know that I have so many smart friends who read early pages. I like am obsessed with my agent. So getting words on the page wasn't as scary as I thought it would be because I was like, I know I can do this. It was, it was more like I was scared about the writing aspect of it, that the the writing wouldn't be good. So at the first I was like, okay, just got to get the ideas, got to do the interviews, got to get the research. And then the hard bit will be like trying to make it sound nice. And coherent, which you absolutely did. I loved this book and learn. And it also made me think just finally, it made me think a lot about like the kind of person I want to be reading the book, which was also surprising to me because I didn't enter it thinking, oh, I'm going to do a lot of self-reflection after reading this on what I do 
badly and what I do well. But I did. Yeah, it makes you, well, made me reflect a lot. So thank you for writing such a brilliant book on friendship. And thanks for coming on, Guyane. Thank you. You've been listening to Cool Story with Bree and Brady, except this time with Guyane. <laughs> this was recorded on Gadigal land, sovereignty was never ceded, and produced by the giggly Sam Devonport. <laughs> You can find us on Instagram at Cool Story Bree Bridie, or you can find us on Facebook as well. We'll put the link in the show notes. Cool Story with Bree and Bridie. It's a private group, but I promise you'll be let in if you request to join. And of course, you can find us on any platform where you listen to podcasts. And please rate and review. We love reading them. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.